悪いでしょう。Good morning, everyone, and thank you all for attending today's meeting. I know you're all anxious to begin this project to create the best anime ever made, and so to get started, I have a question for you all. What makes an anime good? Well, I'm here today to tell you that you're all wrong, dammit, whatever you think. Anime isn't meant to be about any of those things. We're here to make a product, something that appeals to everyone with a functioning brain cell, or at the very least, the very thirsty. Something that we can sell for profit, something that will shake the anime industry to its very foundations! Over the next half hour, I'll show you the multi step process to achieving this, based on a deep understanding of what people truly want from anime. And what will this project be called? Well, disengage your brain bits, my fellow corporate tigers, because it gives me great pleasure to introduce the story for the new generation, the greatest work of Japanese animation ever wrought by human hands. Guilty Crown. It's like trying to eat cavity loft insulation. Ill-advised and very likely to give you a fatal case of indigestion. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, and MBs, to a very special Warrior Desho episode, or possibly a cry for help, according to what my therapist keeps telling me. I'm Shaden, patron saint of bad life choices, and adding to the listening of mistakes I'll be telling my children and grandchildren not to repeat, alongside drinking paint thinner and accepting money to fistfight a bear, it is indeed time to talk about one of the more infamously bad animes created since the turn of the millennium, Guilty Crown. Before we begin, however, I want to preface this discussion by saying that I'll be doing things a little bit differently with this show. You see, putting Guilty Crown through my usual verbal and critical equivalent of Death of a Thousand Cuts, while indeed fun, would also be a bit too easy. The show has a cornucopia of poor decisions and singular moments that range from the baffling to the unintentionally hilarious, and I'll certainly be covering a selection of them in my usual manner of ridiculing them to hell and back. But the problem you see with Guilty Crown is that, as I personally see it, is perhaps the most synthetic anime that I have ever watched in my life thus far. What do I mean by that, you might wonder? Well, have you ever worn a shirt made entirely of polyester, or anything made entirely of man-made fibres? Bizarre analogy, perhaps, but make no mistake, nothing natural, grown or cultivated, made its way into those products. They were designed mostly for function and less for aesthetic, I'd wager. That is Guilty Crown, a show designed from start to finish as a checklist-ticking exercise and not either as a story or a work of spectacle. If Guilty Crown has an author, it isn't a screenwriter or a manga car allowing their beloved work to be adapted to the screen, it is instead a committee of men in suits asking one question over and over, what's hot right now? For fun, let's do a checklist. A protagonist as bland and uninteresting as Dulux's prison block C paint colour? Check. A wifish manic pixie dream girl character with enough dialogue throughout the show's run to fit on a post-it note? Check. Haromantics and high school hijinks? Check. Japan being brought to the brink of ruin by a natural disaster that fundamentally alters both the political and societal landscape of that titular country? You double-check that one. Hilarious American stereotype? Check on that. Bipedal robots? Check, check, and check again. There's all this and more in Guilty Crown, and if all of these attributes blended together make it sound like a top answer for name of a generic anime on Family Fortunes, then you'd be right. But there is something that needs to be acknowledged first. Tropes are not inherently terrible or cliched or rubbish simply because they exist in a work of fiction. I mean, there are literally dozens of shows with giant mecha in them or some kind of catastrophic event that leaves Japan with a bit more than a light cut and a bruise, 
But for every bargain basement anime that has these elements, there are others that use the same core concepts to great effects, both in terms of their own execution and what they contribute to the work as a whole. This is why I find Guilty Crown interesting as something to examine, because it has so many of these common tropes and elements that it almost ceases to have an identity of its own, and even takes some of them in directions that come across as aggressive marketing ploys, rather than story elements of any actual substance. But what is the plot of Guilty Crown? Well, I'll do my best to recount it in a way that isn't as dry and dense as delivering electron particle physics through the voice of Siri, so here goes. It's the future and a meteor strikes Japan in an event that is labelled the Third Impact- <coughs> Sorry, <coughs> sorry, I meant to say Third Apocalypse. This then releases the titular Apocalypse Virus, which threatens to wipe out the population of the country. But thanks to the UN sending an organisation named GHQ, no relation to the hair straight and the brand of the same name, the virus is contained at the cost of Japan's independence. The event is marked as Lost Christmas, given it happened around the holiday of the same name, which if you happen to be a George Michael fan is very convenient since his similarly named song is arguably a better description of the show than I ever could give. Lost Christmas, I gave you my heart, but the very next day, you threw it away. Uh, um, um... Anyways, fast forward 10 years and our resident protagonist, Shu Oma, ends up living every otaku's dream when he meets Inori, a pink-haired idol and member of actual real-life band Egoist. But unfortunately, GHQ are still around and, not merely content to run Japan as a puppet nation, they instead commit something far more horrific and vile than denying Japan's sovereignty. They kidnap Inori right in front of Shu's eyes in what would be recounted in military history as Operation Cockblock. Turns out she's involved with a terrorist organisation known as Funeral Parlour, which to me sounds like a dead-end career path if ever I've heard it. Anyway, Shu sets off in pursuit and ends up conveniently bumping into Funeral Parlour's leader, Guy, who asks him to take care of a vial of what either could be weak old Jello or possibly a biological WMD, which is absolutely something you want to give to some nobody teenager to look after like it were your phone, your wallet, or an ancient cursed family heirloom. Well, who better indeed, because the vial does not, as it turns out, contain Shu's grandmother's weak old trifle, but instead what is labelled the Void Genome, and in a Butterfingers moment that even Nostradamus could have predicted, the vial is shattered, and Shu absorbs it to gain the Power of the King, quote-unquote, which allows him to extract voids, quote-unquote, from other people, which are usually some sort of ability or weapon. After coming close enough to violating her personal space in a way that it results in a lightning conviction in a court of law, Shu extracts Inori's void, a giant claymore designed as if it were the centrepiece of a cock rock album, and destroys GHQ's attacking mechs, setting up the series proper. I should apologise for the overly jokey summary there, but honestly, writing it play by play, beat for beat, would make it as dry and uninteresting as a snake's arsehole. And perhaps I should have to explain that way, because the premise really is as uninspired as it sounds. In an interview with ANN in 2011, production IG's George Wada, one of the three producers of the show, was quoted as wanting to create the next generation of anime with Guilty Crown, which is kind of astonishing given how been there, done that, the premises of a high school male protagonist possessing a unique and hit her toe unseen power, fighting back against a government organisation in the dying embers of a post-apocalyptic Japan, all while accompanied by his near-mute female love interest with unusually coloured hair. You barely even need to squint to see Guilty Crown as some other anime that preceded it. I mean, Neon Genesis Evangelion, Dark of the Black, Akira, there are plenty of other works that came well before Guilty Crown entered the scene in 2011, which all have the same framework and are far more engaging to watch. 
This framework I mentioned before and all the tropes of a self-insert male high school protagonist and everything else that follows are, I insist, not inherently doomed to failure or mediocrity. It's just that Guilty Crown happens to be the latter at best, the former at worst. And in my opinion, it's because the show feels less like it's trying to tell you a story rather than it is trying to sell you a story through character attributes and plot threads that exist not so much because they make sense for the show itself, but because they superficially appeal to the target audience of high school men. Guilty Crown is almost entirely surface, and like a giant poster that covers a festering crawlspace, it only takes a small peeling at the corners to expose it for what it is. So let's get to it then, by looking at each of these elements in turn and how Guilty Crown uses them, and why it's their execution and not simply their concept, which is how the show faceplants so hard. First up... Alright, so listen up office monkeys. First things first, we need to settle on a protagonist. So let's open up the floor. What kind of personality are the anime-watching kids of these days wanting in their lead character? Exactly! Absolutely nothing! See this circle here? See how there's nothing inside of it? That's what our protagonist should have for a personality. A cold, disinterested black hole of a man. Ah, reminds me of my father. And why do our target demographic want a character like this? Well, I'll explain in a moment, but first, and this one's the free as part of the presentation, let me tell you this character's name. He shall be called... Omashu. He is the protagonist of Guilty Crown, and if it were a Western RPG instead of an anime, she would be the default settings you get at the character creation screen. He is that default, that base, and that bloody boring. Shu is what you'd get if you asked a Google algorithm to write a lead character for a story. He also looks suspiciously like Naoto Kuragane from the Blaze Blue franchise, whose inception admittedly followed Guilty Crown's release by several years, so if nothing else, it's good that a boilerplate male lead character stereotype like that can still find work in the cutthroat world of anime. Right from the first episode, Shu self-identifies as a loner who cannot connect with or read other people, but also as someone who views the annexation of Japan by GHQ and the UN as something he cannot settle with. For himself, he asks if apathy and standing aside in the face of injustice are the right things to do, and in the end steps up to rescue Inori after she is kidnapped by GHQ and their military task force known as the Antibodies who, well, they're named out of the, uh, you know, Naming Conventions 101 playbook. Shu, you see, gains the power of the void genome which I mentioned in the first episode, which allows him to extract voids from the hearts of people, by which I do mean the spiritual slash emotional kind, not that he literally rips their hearts out Temple of Doom style. I'll elaborate more on the voids and the void genome later, but right off the bat I need to note that Shu obtains this power by chance during a gunfight between Funeral Parlor and the Antibodies. Completely by luck, he now has the ability to step up and fight, which it is certainly admirable in its own way as opposed to sitting at home and presumably browsing egoist reddit as he otherwise would, but if the show wants to through Shu posit the message that apathy is what allows great evils to be committed, then it already trips right out of the gate at delivering this message for two reasons. Firstly, Shu's involvement is only really because he wants to save Inori, not because he cares about the plight of Japan as a whole. Secondly, the existing presence of the Funeral Parlor members who are already fighting GHQ in the Antibodies shows that there are already willing people fighting to overthrow the government, people who don't need some ill-defined Minecraft meets Persona 4 superpower in order to say that enough is enough. Funnily enough, this problem itself could actually be a strength of the script if events played out mildly differently later in the show's run, but I'll cover that further on. 
But anyway, the other side to the void genome power is that it apparently allows Shu to see the shape of people's hearts through the voids that they create. Arissa, the student council president, for example, has a void which serves as an impenetrable shield, which suggests that she wishes to protect the students under her care. Now, this idea, again, isn't completely unviable, but it serves only really to tell us about character attributes rather than showing them firsthand, and misses the greater narrative opportunity of serving as a way for Shu to actually connect to other people and get around the mental and emotional blocks that prevent him from doing so. Kind of a crutch, if you will. I mean, the loner who suddenly has the power to connect with people and then draw strength from them to fight back against a grave injustice? I made that Persona 4 joke half, you know, for comedy, half because I honestly think the creators of Guilty Crown assigned it amongst other popular video games and anime as homework for their creative staff, all with post-it notes saying, copy the fuck out of this, placed on the covers. Beyond that, Shu's loneliness and unwillingness to open up to others only really serves as another chunk of evidence of Guilty Crown's design more as a marketing exercise than as a crafted piece of dramatic storytelling. Here's the thing, you see. I don't think it's unreasonable to write a protagonist of Shu's age, or even any age for that matter, as a socially reticent individual whose anxieties and insecurities keep them from getting close to other people. Like with Shield Hero, where I felt some connection between myself and Naofumi over that sense of volcanic anger, I would only be a hypocrite if I pretended I hadn't felt that sense of what Shu felt at least at one point in my life or another, a kind of difficulty to allow people to get close and often a kind of knee-jerk desire to push them away as a kind of defence mechanism. Shu's friends clearly admire him, and Hare, one of his female classmates, absolutely has the hots for him, for some reason. The show does present this disconnect between how Shu feels about the world and in turn how others feel about him. That much is true. And it's equally true that a lot of people who watch the show would be able to recognise this in themselves if they've experienced it previously. However, there's an enormous yawning monstrosity of a problem with all of this. Shu has the personality of a horsefly. Now, I will be very real here, so apologies in advance, but I feel it's relevant. I attended therapy earlier this year, and one of the issues I discussed with my therapist was this perception I had that no one gave a shit about me. She in turn told me to take note of all the good things people did for me as a kind of active exercise in recognising the amazing gestures my friends, family and loved ones, you know, put forward for me. And in doing so, I saw that clearly I must have some self-worth and value as a person if they do that. Egotistical, of me to say perhaps, and apologies for the bad pun, but I think people are allowed a little pride in who they are, and I've certainly met plenty of individuals during my time who, like Shu, struggled perhaps to open up or maintain relationships with others despite being awesome in their own right. We see none of that with Shu, though. We don't spend enough time with him prior to the plot kicking off at full gear at the midpoint of the very first episode to actually learn who he really is as a person and get an emotional connection to him or learn why people think so highly of him. This is something we absolutely need to be shown rather than just being told it for his friends blowing smoke up his ass constantly. Else a disconnect occurs between us as the audience and Shu's companions which is immensely frustrating. So if you're keeping score, Shu's apathy in the face of Japan's plight as a macro point for us to root for him doesn't really work because people without the powers that he has have long been fighting GHQ and the antibodies beforehand. Conversely, the reasons that his friends care for him as a micro point for us to root for him are as vague in him the way as Cayman Island tax returns. 
It's especially infuriating later in the show's run when Shu does things that range from him being a genuine cretin at best to a downright wanker at worst, as those actions could have been better justified as a pitfall that he succumbs to if we ever cared about him to begin with. Characters that we like can be allowed to make mistakes in the service of both the overall narrative and their own journeys as people, provided we can at least get behind them at the onset of a story. But Shu is such a non-entity that you'd think he was lifted wholesale from the second entry in a Google image search for the term generic as all hell, the first entry of course going to one of the scientist NPCs from Half-Life. Shu, you see, fits a common mould in more anime than I would like, which is that he is a blank slate protagonist created to serve as a kind of self-insert for the audience. His void genome power is not so much the act of building a relationship and drawing the best out of people made literal, but simply as a teenage power fantasy for those who feel powerless, but believe they always had something special about them all along if only they looked within themselves. Now I will grant that Shu gained the void genome power by chance rather than having had it all along only to be unlocked at some arbitrary threshold of age or development, but in doing so the show also offers a damning indictment of his character in that the only thing that makes him stand out in the end is that power itself. You could replace him with a character of any other design whatsoever, and indeed there is a moment where that nearly actually happens, but more on that later, and nothing would be lost, nor would much surrounding context need to be changed to allow this exercise in find and replace to work. Being a self-insert protagonist makes the show more marketable to a broader audience, and there's no end to the number of anime where their lead male fits this mould perfectly. Shield Hero and Akikan, for example, which are two shows that I covered earlier this year and are united in their own unique ways to cause the blood vessels in my brain to explode like Claymore Mines, they are both instances of this, since Kakaru and Naofu between them have the defined personality types and character attributes of characters from a fanfic written by the algorithms used to run the London Stock Exchange. But while it makes them more broadly approachable to the target audience of teenage boys by not demanding too much of them in terms of understanding and processing the character's incredibly abridged personality and design, it also isn't conducive to good story either. You might argue that Shu is an everyman, for example, but I would again contest this in the face of all the other characters we see, such as Guy, Ayase, Ogumo, and the other members of Funeral Parlor who are already fighting the good fight right from the show's outset. Prima facie, Shu is a marketing strategy at best, one that would have worked had his time on screen matched that of your average commercial appropriately enough. Hopefully a commercial for personality transplants, since he sorely needs one. But Shu is just one of many characters in Guilty Crown, and while I accept that the majority of them exist solely to orbit around him like satellites and strictly for his benefit, they do still merit discussion. Which of course leads us nicely on to... Women! Am I right, boys? Thought so. Everyone loves women and best girl discussions, right? So that's why we need a truckload of them in here. Cat girls, silent girls... Girls with big boobs, and as Kevin Bacon said in Tremors, girls with legs that go all the way up. Now on this next slide, I will show you some concepts I found from Evangelion that I think we can steal, I mean draw inspiration from. Excuse me, sir. What about a lady in a wheelchair? What? A lady in a wheelchair. That'd be new and different. Hmm, okay, so she's a robot pilot. N no, actually, I, I was thinking- In a red jumpsuit. But, 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 I'm a goddamn genius! Alright, we'll add that in, sex her up a bit, call her Asuka, and rake in the dough. So. Where was I? Oh yes! Female characters. Guilty Crown has a fair few of them, but in the war between existing for the purposes of aesthetics, read fan service, and actually having things to do and being three-dimensional in ways other than those that appeal to pixie artists, 
the latter is the loser in the end, I'm sorry to say. Let's start with Yuzuria Inori, who I should add is not the Yuzuria from Undernight in Birth, although I strongly suspect hardcore Guilty Crown fans have had a similar reaction to her with respect to secondhand bathwater, and why yes, I am not sorry for neckering that meme from the depths of fighting game community hell. But anyway, we'll forget about that for the moment. You see, Inori is the lead female, has pink hair, says very little, and also has a personality like shoes in that is as see-through and as insubstantial as an albino poltergeist. She also weighs about £40 soaky wear, wears revealing clothes into battle because, as we all know, the vital points of women are the boobs and the undercarriage, or so a graduate in anime studies with a minor in biology would tell you. To be fair, Inori is more than that, but albeit in not in any way that actually gives the show extra meaning, unfortunately. So, she's the lead member of the idol band Egoist, which were actually made for Guilty Crown, the show I mean, itself. This, I should stress, is a value-neutral concept on its own, because there's nothing wrong with creating a band, singer, or media personality for an anime, or for any work for that matter, and then transitioning to them performing for real in front of real people. I mean, after all, if I started making Guilty Crown walk the plank for doing this just because, I'd then also have to do the same for Macross, which is, as you probably know, a franchise I genuinely adore. So with that in mind, why do I take issue with Inori being an idol in Guilty Crown versus, say, Ranker or Cheryl in Macross Frontier, or Valkyrie from Macross Delta? The key difference here is one of substance. In Macross Frontier, for example, Ranker and Cheryl had their own story arcs and both developed and changed as characters over time, along with having strongly defined personalities right from the moment we meet them, and these dramatic plotlines were tightly integrated with both of their careers as idols, see Ranker's nascent anxieties about becoming an idol versus Cheryl's own downfall and uh, decline to irrelevance as she, you know, loses ground in face of Ranker, for example. I mean, in short, there was an actual reason for making Cheryl and Ranker idols in a way that was relevant to both the overarching narrative and them as individuals. In Inori's case, however, her being an idol in Guilty Crown is meaningful because, well, to be blunt, it'll help sell the show to its target audience, which the creators figured would appeal to teenage boys in the same way that ringing bells appealed to Pavlov's dogs, to be honest. Now, it's not an entirely irrelevant attribute of her character design, as she does sing a few times throughout the show's run, but it's such a peripheral one that you could remove it from the show entirely without much consequence. It is a stretch to assume Inori being an idol is because the creators were cribbing from the then-recent success of Macross Frontier, and particularly the movies, but regardless of outside influences or the lack thereof, Inori's career as an idol only reads to me as an appealing characteristic to sell her and the show by proxy to the audience. This is especially true given she and Shu kind of end up having a thing going on, you see. And as I've mentioned with Shu being a self-insert blank slate, there's a kind of psychological through line here that infers that someone as cool, sexy, talented, and famous as her would want to hook up with Shu, then maybe idols in general might want to hook up with you, random male teenage audience member, also. But what's funny is that this undercurrent of Inori essentially being a trophy for Shu actually becomes overt when she becomes a MacGuffin for the villains at various points in the show's run, to the point that she gets kidnapped and tied up so often I was legitimately surprised that they didn't leave her on a set of railroad tracks at least once. But before I get to that, I should also note how Inori being an idol actively shoots plot holes into the show with the bad writing equivalent of 50 caliber bullets. Here's the thing. Inori works with funeral parlors to commit various acts of domestic terrorism, including serving as Shu's first test run of his void powers when he extracts that gigantic sword I mentioned from her. 
Now, this is a known fact for the antibodies in GHQ. They know who she is. And then later in the first half of the show, she transfers to Shu's high school where she's recognized immediately. Now, not having been a teenager for over 10,000 years, perhaps maybe give or take a year or two, I might be wrong in this assertion, but I believe that people of Shu's age in high school wouldn't exactly be well known for keeping secrets if you follow. Guilty Crown as well, to take another look at it, was made in 2011, which was around the time social media really began to take off in real life. And indeed, the kids of the show do have holographic PDAs that they messed each other with about topics such as homework, the wider world, and oh yeah, how can we forget Inori's arrival? So I ask, and I'm going to try and do this as politely as I possibly can, but here goes. On what fucking level does it make any sense for Inori to transfer to Shu's school given she is a public figure and sticks out like a sore thumb? Now, I could suppose it so Shu could have her on hand to use her void if necessary in order to defend himself in case he was attacked, but this is never stated outright and is a problem that is only made more likely by her being there in the first place. The only reason Shu's school isn't turned into a giant birdbath or crater by GHQ and the antibodies is because idiocy, in this show at the very least, is only undone by more idiocy, and somehow the villains do not learn of his location. Somehow. Especially given Lee GHQ dickhead Sagai spends much of his time on his phone, although I'm personally wagering that he's using it to play Snake or possibly message Tommy Wiseau on Twitter rather than anything work-related. All of this wouldn't be a thing if Inori wasn't an idol, but for the sake of selling her as at best an appealing phantasm of the audience's ideal trophy woman, or at worst as a waifu, this attribute of hers only builds on what I've said before to expose Guilty Crown as a synthetic product, not made to nourish, but simply to make bank. Oh, but did I also mention that Inori is a clone of Shu's dead sister? Yup, Inori is less a bastardized macrocidal and more Rei Ayanami from Evangelion, including how this factors into the plot of using her to bring about the third impact, sorry, I mean the fourth apocalypse. Barring a change in, like, the exact family relation, she is literally a photocopy of Rei in every respect, just with a fresh coat of paint. And between her construction as an aggressively blatant slice of bacon to feed to what the show's creators see as the starving wolves of its target audience, versus the obvious ripping off of Evangelion, I actually cannot decide which is worse. Actually, no, 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 fuck it. What's worse, you know, is that Shu and Inori are actually pretty much an item by the end of the show, if you think about it. And it doesn't matter what form they appear in, be it clone, doll, virtual YouTuber, whatever. Don't hook up with your sister for fuck's sake. Okay, so let's move on from Inori, and let's instead talk about the person she was copy-pasted from, Mana, who is Shu's sister. Mana does not exist in the show as her own character, ever really, to be honest. Or if she does, she only exists in a version of Guilty Crown script which was written by an actually competent individual, which I in turn assume IG production burns ashes upon reading it and realising that Mana could actually exist as something other than Guilty Crown's own version of Genova from Final Fantasy VII. Thing is, Mana is a concept in the show, not a person. For the villains who wish to revive her as the new Eve and be the figurehead of humanity's next evolutionary step via the apocalypse virus, that is absolutely fine from a narrative standpoint. But what gets me is that as Shu's sister, he has even less of a regard for her as a person than the daft secret society, guy, or kiddo. You see, 
Mana becoming the vessel for the Apocalypse Iris is something that occurred by accident, as she was the one to discover the meteorite that contained it shortly after it crashed on Earth, and obviously she had no idea of the potential danger it possessed, I mean she was only a girl at the time. I feel it would be entirely reasonable to label what happens to her as a tragedy, as the virus slowly drives her insane and essentially wipes her mind and soul away. I label it as a tragedy. Guilty Crown does not, by which I mean Shu has no feelings of loss, grief, or trauma that relate to what happened with Mana. Even in the very final episode, Shu's big heart-to-heart -heart moment is not with her when she dies, but with Guy, their mutual childhood friend. Any memory Shu has of Mana that we are presented with in the show's runtime only serve as hints of Inori's origin story as a clone of her, and not instead as deep scars in Shu's psyche that still haunts him to this day. I mean, heck, one of the most infuriating things about this debacle of not fleshing out Mana's backstory at all is that if the writers actually did make even a token effort to turn her into a real character, it would immediately have that backstory gel with shoes on introversion and arm's distance approach to his friends and loved ones. I mean, after all, if Mana could spiritually and then literally die due to a horrific and unforeseeable encounter with the apocalypse virus, and that said virus is still around and could in theory take anyone else Shoes cares about away, so casually and impersonally, then this all fits together seamlessly. In addition, it would give Shu a reason to want to fight Daft's secret plan to perpetuate the apocalypse virus, because their perspective is of how it would benefit humanity by turning them into a higher, more evolved existence, at the cost of destroying individual lives. Even if Daft in the end were right about this complete and utter nonsense theory of the next step of humanity's evolution, that advancement is something they are imposing on humankind without asking their collective consent, a parallel, if you will, to Mana's own demise as something she never wanted. Making Mana a complete character would still mean she'd only exist to be fridge for shoes sake, arguably, but in one stroke it would have made the show so much better in a myriad of ways. But again, the more defined Shu and his backstory are, including the characters that orbit him, the less he serves as a comfy jacket that the audience can pawn with ease to self-insert into. He becomes less marketable, less of a commodity that people can readily like straight off the shelf. Moving on, Shu does have another female family member, Haruka, his mother. Our introduction to Haruka is well, of her wearing only undergarments and a loose purple shirt as she gets a can of booze from the fridge, cracks it open, and then proceeds to hug Shu from behind while pressing her boobs against him. But it's okay, because just like how Inori isn't really his sister but a cheap facsimile, Haruka is Shu's stepmother. There's a difference, you see. Honestly, you'd think that the show was not just aimed at teenage otaku, but also rednecks with the get-out-of-jail-free clauses that keep getting slipped into, supposedly stop the audience from cringing so hard it causes them to slip a disc. Beyond that, Haruka is also another slice of evidence in the courtroom exhibit on where Guilty Crown cribs from Neon Jazz Evangelion, because if that initial summary of her I gave earlier rang a little familiar in your mind, that's because it reads almost note for note how Misato Katsuragi was introduced in that famous scene from Eva of her drinking beer in minimal clothing. Now, this is more tenuous, I'll grant, as Haruka's profession in the show is as a scientist as opposed to a military officer like Misato was. But between coincidence versus deliberate homage slash ripoff, I deeply favour the latter with Haruka. 
Plus, it's again in case of wanting to commoditize the show by having another sexy lady be all over Shu with the most gossamer thin hand wave of how Haruka can coexist with all of the other female characters who want to violate Shu's personal space without constantly butting heads with each other. The last female character we'll cover here to round out the trilogy of Ava importing is Ayase, who serves as this show's Asuka Soryu Langley, both in terms of having a massive point to prove and that she is a mech pilot who wears a red jumpsuit. However, Ayase actually is my favourite character in the show by a solid margin, despite Guilty Crown's hypocrisy in both how it portrays her textually and visually. Ayase, you see, is paraplegic from the waist down, so she relies on a wheelchair. This is a source of grievance for her because she does not want to be pitied or belittled for being disabled, demanding that no one help her back into the chair if she falls from it, and also similarly not wanting people to see her doing so. For a show that treats its female characters as basically the narrative equivalent of Xbox achievements for Shu to collect, and almost completely without any intrinsic value to themselves, this is a refreshingly welcome character trait for ISA to have that gives her much more dignity than any other lady in the show and makes her feel like she has her own agency rather than conceptually existing just to give Shu either a one-sided romantic interest or as someone who exists solely to serve as a talking point in best girl discussions. However, having agency and still being in a work of fiction for the purposes I mentioned previously aren't mutually exclusive, and ISA falls victim to that hypocrisy built into Guilty Crown's creation. For all that she protests that no one help her into her wheelchair and no one look at her while she gets back into it, the show seems to relish in objectifying her at various points for fan service, which kind of smacks of a poor understanding of how visuals and narrative should gel rather than clash. ISA you see is an Enlave pilot, and if you're wondering what Enlave is, they are the incredibly dull and generic looking piece of shit bipedal mecha of Guilty Crown that were probably conceptually designed and taken to print in the same time it takes to make a batch of instant ramen. Her being paraplegic and also being a pilot of a bipedal mecha are points that go hand in hand pretty easily and provide a foundation for potentially great personal drama, with the Enlave serving as the means for ISA to walk again in a sense, serving as a fulcrum for that drama to work around. But, believe me when I tell you that Avatar... James Cameron's magnum opus of all things handles this better with Sam Worthington's disabled character in that film, which is impressive when you consider that Sam Worthington's acting range can be measured with a classroom ruler with length to spare. For ISA, there is a chance for her to actually walk again that occurs in the second half of the show's run, which I'll cover in the next section, but insofar as actual development and examination of her as a person, those understandably rough edges to her over a disability reach the height of their examination with their introduction. ISA's Endlave, however, seems to have a fatal flaw built into it in that she feels the feedback of impacts it receives, and in true hack fashion, every time this happens, we get a shot of her arching back, cheeks flushed, and generally looking like she's appeared on the preview thumbnail of a Pornhub video. Diegetically, this glass jaw approach to piloted robot design seems really bloody stupid to begin with, but it of course exists in the show to provide fan service of ISA looking like she styled her Enlave's vibrator by accident rather than firing its missiles or the like. This is pretty tasteless in of itself, but recall the fact that ISA stated that she didn't want anyone looking at her while she gets back into her wheelchair. She ultimately asked Shu not to demean her by looking at her in a position of vulnerability, yet the show indulges in shots of her that out of context would readers reaching climax which exist only for the audience's benefit. 
Now, I know I've banged my drum over fan service in the past, but to be clear, my beef lies with its use in anime, not that it simply exists in the first place, much as any other part of, say, Guilty Crown's construction. Shows like Keijo, for example, are entirely about fan service from start to finish, and much as they might not be for me personally, I also would never begrudge them for being what they are. But fan service can't be inserted into a story without at least a minimum of consideration for if it is appropriate or not for the tale you want to tell. Now, that shouldn't mean you eject fan service every time in favour of more story, but rather that you consider the tone and intent of your working characters and consider on a scene by scene basis which to use. Unless you're guilty, Crown, in which case you can have ISA be the victim of a near rape attempt on at least one occasion, and still close out the final episode with her boobs jiggling all over the show as her end lady gets smacked around. Guilty Crown really wants to have its cake and eat it, but it only ends up getting indigestion and puking in the flower pot. There are other female characters I could talk about right now, such as Hare and Arissa, but I'll conclude this section here by pointing back to the common problem with Guilty Crown, which is its desire to tell a serious tale that clashes against the show's wish for mass appeal. Inori, for example, has her own moments of self-doubt about her identity, but she's also completely infatuated with Shu for whatever reason, looks like she was designed as the OC of a mediocre Twitter artist, and has a set of defined attributes and personality traits that could be described as anemic. Haruka has an episode exploring her backstory about how she became Shu's stepmom and how she deeply cares for him, but our first impression of her much earlier in the show is her drinking beer and wearing clothes reserved for the opening acts of a striptease. ISA gets off the best by having her disability be reasonably well handled and leads to her having some solid moments of her coping with it and showing her own fortitude as a human being. But even then, she's still used mostly in service of the show's main objectives, elevating Shu to a lofty and enviable position to enhance the value of the self-insert proposition for the audience, and also just being aesthetically pleasing to help peddle Guilty Crown to its intended market. None of what I've discussed, to be fair, is close to being the worst depiction of women in anime that I personally have seen. Disappointing is the label I'd use for all of Guilty Crown's handling of female characters, because like everything else, Inori's self-identity crisis, Mana's holistic death as a person from the apocalypse virus, Haruka filling in the role of stepmother to a broken family and for a traumatised young boy, and even ISA's paraplegia, all of these plot threads have real potential to be deeply engaging and dramatically powerful. But that would demand a higher level of emotional and intellectual engagement from the audience, thinning out the maximised allure the show reaches for to help it retail. So we've covered Shu and most of the female characters. Through these summaries, I've also touched on some of the plot threads and events of the show, but these do need a proper examination too, particularly the second half of Guilty Crown's run where the budget just kind of seems to evaporate. And while the plot of the first half wasn't anything special really, and motivations for the heroes and villains are vague at best, the latter half feels like it was written immediately after the script writers just stood up after being spun on their office chairs for five minutes straight. I mean... I know writing is difficult, but that doesn't mean you should half-arse your shows. Plot! Everyone loves a good plot, right? But I tell you kids these days, what they need and want for a plot is density. Value packs, you know, like a TV dinner. It's gotta have weighty ideas and themes, a Judeo-Christian word salad, and it's gotta sound smart. Believe me, folks, when I say that philosophy made me into the successful businessman I am today. So for this project, I want you all to think long and hard on how to make this story so rich with detail that we can just hand-wave away any attempts at actual drama or narrative through line. 
To help you with this, I've placed a hammer on each of your desks. Take it and repeatedly hit yourselves in the head until you've done enough damage that you're ready to submit story ideas. Okay, on three. One, two... Three things come to mind when I think back to Guilty Crown's overall story. Eh? Uh, and were? So, okay, a confession. I watched this show once in August and early September of 2019, and then left it by the wayside a bit in the writing process, owing to other commitments. When it came time in October to start writing this script, I honestly could not remember even a tenth of the actual events that happened in the show proper. The sentiment I had towards it of high-powered disappointment mixed with a strong sense of feeling like I'd spent several hours of my life in a boardroom meeting rather than in my home, that all still remained, but little of the actual facts. My memory was like a moth-eaten piece of cloth, which I assure you for once was not due to my rampant alcoholism. When it comes to Guilty Crown then, why is that? Well, after a ill-advised rewatch in December, three new things come to mind. Let's start with the first, which covers an idea that in of itself merits a lot more discussion and nuance than I am probably currently capable of covering, but it is still worth highlighting. There's a common thread in a lot of anime set in Japan that seem to focus on either its destruction or the aftermath that follows, or even both. In turn, this destruction can be physical, spiritual, societal, or any combination thereof. Evangelion, the badly understood inspiration by way of plagiaristic blueprint of Guilty Crown, that certainly has this element, but there are many others. Fiction, you see, is often a product of an author's own lived experiences, whether or not those experiences are utilised consciously or unconsciously in the creative process. So, given the socio-economic tumult that Japan experienced in the 1990s onwards through to the Great Recession's conclusion in 2009, it would be incredibly surprising if that never played into the gestation of many stories and settings in anime of the time. Indeed, even before the Great Recession began, Japan's economy had withered in such a way that the period in the 90s gained a label, the Lost Decade, which amongst other impacts resulted in a real wage loss of 13% from 1997 onwards, which, to be blunt, is fucking nuts. But the Lost Decade, eh? Hmm, does that sound familiar to you? Well, I mentioned it before, so allow me to link this together to Guilty Crown's own version of Armageddon, Lost Christmas. Now, the name similarity is thin, I will grant you, but there's a reason I bring this up. The Lost Decade had a tangible effect on the lives of the average person in Japan, even beyond the fiscal element, contributing to a sort of collective emotional malaise that led to, amongst other things, the rise of Om Shinrikyo, the perpetrators of the Tokyo subway sarin gas attacks, which itself was a deep wound on the Japanese psyche. In Haruki Murakami's Underground, which is about that event and accounts thereof, ex-Om Shinrikyo member Hidetoshi Takahashi is quoted as saying, I think inside all Japanese there is an apocalyptic viewpoint, an invisible, unconscious sense of fear. Now, I've barely scratched the surface of this idea, but it seems to me that the decline of Japan in the 1990s was, while not the end of the world in a literal sense, still perceived on some communal level by the Japanese people as its own kind of cataclysm, hence why it appears in a fair amount of anime from that time. This is relevant because Guilty Crown's Lost Christmas is that cataclysm, and yet its effects on the wider world in the show are felt so limply as to make it relatively immaterial. Shu goes to high school as usual, and without the future text such as the holographic PDAs and the mention of show-specific events, it all kind of feels like business as usual. Now, we do see some victims of the apocalypse virus in government facilities and also with Yahiro's sister, but the general mood of everyday life is that things are fine. 
For an event of mass destruction that also happened at Christmas of all holidays, you'd think this would have a lingering feeling on the lives of the people in the show. But as I mentioned before, Shu's traumatic history of manner, or lack thereof, that gets enough time in the script to fill out a five-second YouTube advert, so it should be no surprise that Lost Christmas itself as a foundational event in Guilty Crown's lore is well, it's spoken about by characters in the show with the same tenor as the phrases buy one, get one free, or Olive Garden breadsticks. This is a massive missed opportunity to give the show a powerful sense of atmosphere and despondence that can then be overcome with hope by Shu's actions, as well as making it actually poignant and relevant to the very audience it is aimed at. Instead, Lost Christmas is used for a different purpose in Guilty Crown, which leads me on to the next point, Judeo-Christian mumbo-jumbo. Now, let's be fair here. Evangelion was also culpable for this, where Christian mythology, stories, and characters are referenced wholesale throughout the show's run, liberally sprinkled all over like chili flakes on a meringue where it does not belong. I'm not saying one can't use explicit references to religious texts or scriptures for the purposes of writing fiction, but like everything else from character motivations to themes to dramatic arcs, you simply can't put religious references in there for the fun of it. Their inclusion must be carefully considered and brought about for the sake of enhancing plot and or character, and in Guilty Count's case, it does neither, instead serving as pretentious waffle. Amongst the things the show mentions are stuff like Adam and Eve, the Fourth Apocalypse, the Messiah, heck, even the Guilty Crown of the title does double duty both as reference to Shu's time as a king in the second act, i.e. the King of Kings, more on that in a bit, but also likely to the crown of thorns worn by Jesus on the crucifix, Indeed, Guy himself wears a crucifix around his neck. Uh, the inciting incident as the entire series is set at Christmas, i.e. Jesus' birth. Mana's name is a reference to a food given to the Israelites during Exodus, and on and on and on and on and on. If you believe any of these things exist in Guilty Crown to serve the characters, then I'm afraid you are shit out of luck on that. Instead, to me at least, Guilty Crown's appropriation of Christian symbolism and mythology only serves to give the show a sense of perceived grandeur that is, so to speak, be biblical in scope. I wouldn't mind if the show used these elements to question or examine faith either as a belief system or moral code, be that on a micro or macro level, but in trying to consecrate itself in Judeo-Christian myth, Guilty Crown instead only drowns in dense, impenetrable divine pretentiousness. This again is another embellishment the show uses to put itself forward as something greater than it is, to promote itself to its target demographic by seeming intricate and divine, but on a level that doesn't actually require deep engagement, it's just all surface. But the absolute peak of the show's asininity comes in the second half, with the third and final point I'll cover for this section, which is known in fandom as the Shugenics arc. <laughs> I would love to claim I came up with the name for this myself, because it's honestly the most genius thing Guilty Crown could arguably lay claim to, but instead I'll shout out Shinmaru for that wonderful fan label of this nonsense tire fire of a plot thread. So, to summarise, following the conclusion of the first half of the show where the apocalypse virus is unleashed once again on Japan in one of the more nasty documented cases of deja vu in history, Shu and his fellow students are left trapped in their high school as the wider district around it is encircled by a moving wall. 
With no adults around and limited supplies, tensions begin to run high and soon Shu finds himself in charge of the students after Arissa is forced out of her role as student council president. Now a king of sorts, which by the way is the exact label characters use in the show for Shu, Shu is soon persuaded by Yahiro to implement a class system based on each individual's void resonance, which is a measurement of how powerful that person's void is numerically, hence the Shugenics label. After this, things rapidly spiral out of control as Shu attempts to lead the students out of the district in a last-ditch attack on the encroaching wall, only to have his arm cut off by a freshly revived guy, who had died at the end of the previous arc, and resultantly, Shu's void genome power is taken, leaving him for dead. If all of that sounds like it's the rank stupidity of Star Wars midichlorians mixed with Dragon Ball Z's power levels, then you're close, but not quite close enough. Now, as much as midichlorians ruined the mystery and wonder of the Force in Star Wars, their intent was to highlight Anakin's potential, blunt force trauma as it was in terms of writing quality. Power levels in Dragon Ball Z conversely have been flat out stated by Akira Toriyama to be absolute nonsense. In Guilty Crown's case, numerically measuring each individual's void power and using it to create a caste system to, in Yahiro's own words, make sure they are prepared for any eventuality by ensuring those with the best voids are the most well looked after, given their dwindling supplies, that makes absolutely no bloody sense, and even worse, it doesn't provide us with an infamous mean to boot. God damn it. The rub is, Yahiro's measurement of void potential is numerical, but voids are unique powers that each person has, and by that very nature mean that a quantitative measuring system fails utterly to catch their usefulness. This is actually proven on screen by the void of one of Shu's friends, Sota, as Sota being someone we met earlier in the show, and his void is a camera which can open locked objects. He is rated as an F-tier void user because of his numerical measurement being lower than arguably his bank balance, but we at this point have already seen Sota's Void used by Shu to open incredibly complicated mechanisms and locked doors, so the rating system is bullshit right off the bat. But ah, you might say, isn't that intentional on the writer's part? Well, only insofar as how it relates to Shu initially passively endorsing and then outright enforcing this system for no real reason while he comes up with a plan, which I find hilarious given that with just the voids he has obtained up to this point, like it's a Metroidvania such as Inori's sword, Arissa's shield, and Sosa's lock opening camera, they could have in theory broken past the wall immediately as I see it. All of the drama of the Shugenics arc is built on a foundation of false pretenses that don't hold up even to the barest scrutiny, and only otherwise exists to put Shu through the ringer as he struggles to cope with being a leader. As it happens, Shu has had kind of a jealousy but also a critical streak towards Guy being the leader of Funeral Parlor, and in Guy's absence and subsequent resurrection as this show's own version of Kwaru from Eva, Shu then is forced to lead from the front. This is a fine plot point in a vacuum, but Guilty Crown's standard execution of it makes Shu simultaneously look like he only has an IOU inside his skull, and also like a puppy-kicking arsewipe, rather than someone crushed by the responsibility and pressure of leadership. The former is evidenced by what I already mentioned in that Shu arguably already possesses the necessary tools to escape the wall, and that he's also a complete doormat to Yahiro, but the latter is proven by what causes Shu to snap at the midpoint of the arc. Remember Hare, best known for her chest being a cushion for Shu's head? During a moment when Sota and a few others try to escape the walls, Shu and Hare intervene and the two are attacked by a helicopter strike which leaves them both gravely injured. I'll mention here before we go any further that Hare's Void is capable of restoring damage and injury, basically the same as Crazy Diamond from JoJo's Part 4. But unlike Crazy Diamond, it is never established that Hare cannot heal herself with this power. 
So, pop quiz for you at home. Between healing herself first, then getting herself and Shu to safety to in turn heal him, or healing Shu immediately and potentially bleeding out in the street, what do you reckon Hare does? Well, because everyone and everything in this show exists for Shu's benefit, it should come as a kind of negative surprise that Hare heals Shu first and then dies when her void is shot because, surprise surprise, if your void is destroyed, you die too. Shu blames himself for Hari's death, which is the most on point he's been throughout the show, and embraces being a massive twat as a result. The problem with this plotline is not just Hare's disposability as a character solely for Shu's own narrative arc in the same way that Mana gets fridged, or the fact that it's actually Shu's fault that she ended up in the line of fire in the first place, but that it relies on the idiocy of the characters for it to happen to begin with. And idiocy as the bread and butter of any story is anathema to telling that story well, unless you're deliberately trying to create something that serves as Mystery Science Theater 3000 material. But beyond the lack of careful and intelligent consideration of how the Shugenics arc plays out, which I haven't even covered in full yet to be honest, it's around this time in Guilty Crown's run that another factor necessary to the painless creation of a show starts to run dry, the budget. This is evident in a couple of places, such as how the final battle to escape the enclosing walls around the high school district plays out with, well, all the visual fluidity and kinetic energy of your aunt's holiday photo reel, or when animation begins to be recycled or traced over wholesale, such as the reused footage of Shu and Inori's time in the high school garden, to Inori's close-ups when captured, showing her in the exact same pose and with the exact same facial animations as in the first OP for the show, with the only difference being her attire. The final battle of the Shugenics arc is especially egregious because... Despite being a series of still images with limited actual movement, design-wise we also see how the creators ran out of imagination along with the budget, in that the designs of each nameless student's voids start to blend together into indistinctiveness. When your climactic last stand is actually worse than the penultimate battle in X-Men 3, the last stand, you know you fucked up somewhere. So after all that palaver, the students do escape, but Shu gets disarmed quite literally by a guy who steals his void genome power and leaves him for dead. This again is not a bad idea on paper, that is to say removing Shu's power, not seeing him bleed out, although I am sure there are plenty of people who would argue otherwise. I say this though because, as I alluded to before, there was an opportunity for Shu to grow from using the void genome as a clutch to rule and lead over his fellow students to actually becoming a genuine figurehead and champion, one who has no power, but nonetheless can rally and bring people together to fight against a great evil. Now, I grant, that is predicated on Shu having any charisma whatsoever, which is wishful thinking at best, but it's a possibility for a radical shift in the show's raison d'etre that would mesh with its existing ideas for Shu's character flaws while taking it in a new, more meaningful direction. By which I mean, having at least any meaning whatsoever. And then Haruka obtains a second sample of the Void genome from what might as well be fucking Craigslist for all that appears out of nowhere, and plans to take it to Shu to potentially give him his powers back. I say potentially, because Haruka states it could well kill him if he used it a second time, and on top of that, while in the process of smuggling this second void genome out of GHQ headquarters, she has no bloody clue where he is, or even if he's fucking alive! Now, this is when Ayase re-enters the picture, as she meets up with Haruka and suggests that she be given the void genome instead. 
I will readily admit my bias here in that as the most interesting character in the show, ISA gaining the void genome power would have instantly breathed new life into Guilty Crown for me, although I readily admit it would have been an awkward gear shift to swap her in favour of Shu simply on a structural level, and it'd also be kind of hypocritical given what I've said before about how Shu would have been more interested if he didn't have powers. However, Invents intervene to force the Void Genome Vial from ISA and Haruka's possession, which in turn leads to it miraculously landing at Shu's feet, and him then injecting himself with said vial in a moment so contrived, it is scientifically proven to increase the likelihood of you having an aneurysm. This moment, this moment right here, exposes the fallacy of Shu as a protagonist, because despite him dragging himself back from the brink of death to assist once more, even without his powers and no way of knowing he'll get them back, the show twists itself in knots to give him back those powers within the space of two episodes. Perfectly mirroring the show's opening, it is not Shu's agency or Peter Parker-style responsibility that makes him a hero. It is the power of the Void Genome, and it makes all the preceding episodes and time invested in the Shugenics arc a complete waste of your engagement. All of this only occurs by ways and means of either the characters being rock stupid or because things simply happen to push the plot forward, such as the asininity and the fucking stupidity of how Shu just happens to be in the right place at the right time for the one sample of Void Genome on the planet that still hadn't been used to rock up to his feet like he had just been dropped in the street like a fucking wallet. And as before, none of it is for the benefit of any character but Shu himself. If there's one final moment I need to highlight as evidence on how the creators of Guilty Crown were so utterly disconnected from reality, then I'll conclude by mentioning the lead up to the final battle post Shu's power restoration where he rides up to the enemy forces on a void. Shaped like a Segway. Yes, a fucking Segway. Shu rides up to the enemy, leading the charge like he's part of some mounted horseback cavalry as the music swells and intones both badassery and the pending climax of the show. And I will tell you for free, all I could hear in the background was Weird Al Yankovic's riding nerdy. What was meant to be serious was instead ridiculous, a fitting encapsulation for the show as a whole. But that's not quite the end. There's a little more to discuss before we wrap up, so let's talk about... Bittersweet endings. We need one where we feel just how special and wonderful the main character is. It's got to be all about them, even in the closing moments, no matter how many characters we kill in the plot to make it happen. Am I right? Am I right, folks? Are any of you even still listening? God damn it! None of you can appreciate the genius of this show idea I have for you. Guilty Crow's a masterpiece of the human condition, blended with romance and high-octane action. You're all fools if you don't think it's going to end up as... A wasted opportunity. That's how I describe Guilty Crown, and nowhere is that more emblematic in its ending. After defeating Daft, the antibodies, Mana and Guy, Shu then begins to absorb the unleashed apocalypse virus into himself, thus fulfilling the tortured Jesus metaphor that has been crowbarred into the show with all the dignity and grace of wearing a pair of boxes on your head. This will kill him, but Inori intervenes and takes the virus into herself and sacrifices her life to save Shu's. Hard smash cut to several years later where ISA and company are attending a birthday party in memory of Hare, a scene that's already amusing as I honestly thought the writers would have forgotten her after she fulfilled her two-dimensional narrative purpose in the show, and also because no one seems to have aged one goddamn day, but that's not where we end off exactly. 
Shu arrives, and it turns out he is now blind as a result of the events of the final battle. After chatting with his friends, he retires outside and listens to one of Inori's songs on his future AirPods, closing out the show as a kind of bookend to our first introduction of him listening to one of her music videos. Now, save for the fact that he is wearing an incredibly dorky outfit straight out of the Retirement Home Autumnal collection, this scene actually would work as a final reminder of how Shu connects with Inori through her music, and how his sight loss does not diminish his affection or memory of her over time. If it had followed from a show's worth of genuine emotional drama with weight and meaning and substance, it would have been a very bittersweet send-off. But, well, no surprises that that's not what happened, as I've described at length, and between Shu and Inori not existing as fully realised characters, plus all of the other questionable creative decisions leading up to this point, Guilty Crown's poignant final seconds go out of a whimper rather than a bang, with two characters who functionally do not exist because of their piss-weak development throughout the show's run. If I had to play Anime Doctor and diagnose this, I would return to my opening statement in this podcast, which is that I see Guilty Crown more as a marketing stud, an assembly line product precision engineered with elements to help sell it to a target audience, Inori as an idol, Shu as a self-insert blank slate, giant mechs, the continual high school setting when it's not merited, the void genome and apocalypse virus, all of these things read as pointers on the back of a box rather than things we engage with throughout the course of the story. And for all that production IG wanted Guilty Crown to be the next generation of anime, it is instead only incredibly retrograde and derivative of smarter, more interesting works that use all of its component parts to actual effect. Had Guilty Crown been approached as a tale to tell with passion and motivation rather than something to manufacture and mass market, I reckon it could have been good, perhaps even great. As is, it's at best boring, at worst a shovel load of shite. Okay, this podcast is long as is, and there's plenty more I could cover, such as Samugi or rejected Team America character Dan Eagleman, but I'll leave it there. To you, the listener, I'd like to thank you so much for joining me on this Christmas journey into Guilty Crown for all the laughs, jokes, and insights I hope I've been able to provide. I really appreciate your time listening to this. I'd also like to shout out Emily Rand for suggesting this show to me in the same way that a meth dealer suggests a new cut of his product to a junkie. Much appreciated for that, Emily. Thanks. Thanks a bunch. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to see more productions like it from me, why not consider becoming a patron of Wari Desho to help support us financially in creating long-form essays like this? You get other benefits to boot, such as Discord access, early access to ongoing weekly coverage of shows, and even the chance to request I or another co-host cover a show of your choosing in the kind of detail I've done here today. Feel free to check that out at patreon.com forward slash Desho. And if you're otherwise wanting to support us in ways other than financially, we're always grateful for your likes, subscribes, comments and shares on whatever service you find us on, as it always helps with our discoverability. But that brings us to the end. I wish you all a very Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays and a Happy New Year, and I hope that whatever you're doing, you have the best time you can. Otherwise, I'll see you all in 2020, when we'll be covering more anime week on week, and also doing more long-form projects like this. Next up from me will be Flag, but... Otherwise, for the rest of 2019, and going beyond that, of course, as we're often fond of saying on this podcast, embrace you for everyone to the ends of the universe. Have a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. All the best.